0: Honestly, getting into her apartment is really easy. I've been over there before. And I mean, the restraining order wasn't going to keep me away.
1: It's everyone's nightmare. He broke into my home. I felt so violated.
0: I felt like if I could see her, and if she could see me, and I could talk to her, that I'd be able to remind her of what we had.
1: I had no idea what he was going to do.
0: Honestly, I needed to make it clear to her that she was making this huge mistake.
2: about you guys, but I was pretty shocked to learn that Will was the one devastated by this breakup. And he's beginning to think and act irrationally, even obsessively. But before we get there, let's meet Penelope. A few months ago, way before I started working on this series, I saw her perform at My Diary, a monthly show at Dynasty Typewriter here in LA, hosted by comedian Lindsay Ames. And what Penelope read was so personal, so fascinating, that I was compelled to track her down. I'm Alison Becker, and this is Obsession, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and LA Times Studios, and funded by Focus Features in support of the film Greta. In our first episode, we defined limerence, aka unrequited love, and tried to find the tipping point where these thoughts become obsessive. In this second episode, we're going to look at what triggers these thoughts and behaviors. What's going on in our lives at a given time that opens us up to having these fixations and quote-unquote relationships? Here's Penelope.
3: He was a ninth grade boy at the same high school that I went to. I was a junior. We had never spoken to one another, never crossed paths. It all started where my two closest friends, Lily and Becca, wanted to start an art project. And we were like, what if we just picked a random student that we didn't know, that we had never spoken to, and we observed them. And we tried to get to know them as much as possible without ever actually speaking to them or contacting them. We wanted to celebrate this person. We wanted it to be someone we thought was cool and worth getting to know, someone kind of complicated, maybe misunderstood. That night, someone sent out an email to the entire school and there was something about this email that just struck a chord with us. And it was a young man named Mr. Tinkle, It was kind of a dorky email being like, hello school, I lost my backpack, I'm really upset over this. But we thought it was like really sweet and endearing. And I mean, we must admit we did love his name. We weren't trying to make fun of him, but it was a fabulous name. So we ended up picking him. I wrote in my diary, I remember seeing him and I could tell he didn't really fit in. I could tell he probably wasn't that popular. And we saw a lot of ourselves in him. The three girls
2: made it their mission to find the missing backpack. They spent hours looking, but it turned up in the most logical place, the lost and found. Penelope took advantage of her time with Mr. Tinkle's stuff.
3: I I scanned everything in his backpack and he had movie tickets, he had receipts, he had his grandpa's wallet, he had his math books, he had some assignments, he had this hilarious rap that was in Sandwiched in Between his Mass book that at one point I had perfectly memorized. I actually think, I don't have it in front of me. I, I could probably tell you the first few lines of it right now. Um, the rap goes, the story is old, but the rhymes are new. With a hose after shows, what the hell are you gonna do? It just was like our first taste of his secret personality that felt like only we knew about it. And so it felt special.
2: She returned the backpack, but not before placing some of its contents in what she called the tinkle file, entry number one. Wanting to get even closer, Penelope began logging his movements in a small notebook. And then one day in the cafeteria, after he finished his meal, she grabbed a piece of his hair and a used napkin and placed it in a Ziploc bag, entry number two in the tinkle file. Over the next few months, Penelope continued to collect more items. While her friends grew bored with the art project, she grew obsessed and more daring. She seized an opportunity to sneak into his dorm room over spring break and couldn't resist taking some of his
3: personal things. So I grabbed a ska mixtape, and then I also stole a pair of his tiny little boxer shorts. They were so little. I think they are like red and black and white plaid. I think I slept in them a couple times. Okay,
2: so I was in the audience listening to this diary reading, and I was like, hold up, Penelope. This is no longer an art project, but it is fascinating. And what about Mr. Tinkle? I mean, he must have known he was being watched, right?
4: To maintain a little bit of my anonymity, I'm just going to use my last name, which is the more sort of pertinent part of the story, uh, because it is a funny and particular uh, last name, which is Tinkle.
2: That's right, folks. We tracked down Mr. Tinkle.
4: I never really became aware. Like, I was, you know, pretty surprised and shocked. I thought it was a little bit strange. I also, I think I was like somewhere in the range of like intrigued, a little bit weirded out (laughs) and a little bit flattered, probably.
2: Mr. Tinkle has never really shared his experience with anyone but family and close friends. Penelope's one-sided love for her idealized Mr. Tinkle ended more than 10 years ago, like most of our adolescent obsessions. But these stories of romantic pursuit and unrequited love withstand time. It's well-documented throughout history. As far back as the Bible and Greek mythology, love was a hot topic. Helen of Troy was at the center of an obsessive love triangle, or maybe a love octagon. The Greeks even created a god of unrequited love, Antiros. By the 12th century, there were poet-musicians known as troubadours who entertained French royalty with songs of unrequited love and the pain of rejection. The literary references go way back to and include many of the world's most influential writers. Shakespeare, Victor Hugo, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Taylor Swift, Toni Morrison, really the list goes on. Poet Emily Dickinson left behind tortured letters of her unfulfilled desire for a man she cryptically referred to as Master. While working on this series, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with British Romantic poet Lord Byron. The very same month he published his famous narrative poem, Child Harold*, he began a scandalous and very public affair with the married Lady Caroline Lamb. She may or may not have been the one who famously described him as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. But he broke it off, and she became relentless in her bid to win him back. She wrote to him constantly, sent him locks of her hair, including her pubic hair. Reading about obsessive love can be wildly entertaining, but to see it acted out is definitely more nerve-wracking, especially when it comes from the most surprising people. Because obsessive love isn't always spawned by romance or even sexual desire. We're going to take a short break and speak with actress Chloe Grace Moretz, star of the Focus Features film Greta. She plays Frances, a naive young woman trying to make it in New York after the death of her mother. She befriends an older woman, but the maternal charms that brought them together quickly fade and she finds herself on the receiving end of some very unwanted and disturbing behavior.
1: The movie is most definitely about obsessive love and there is an interesting I think psychological analysis you can do to the character of Greta. I think she is more in love with the idea of having a daughter that is also completely a a puppet of sorts to her. You can't puppeteer someone. It's an interesting theme to see in the movie. The minute that they start to get their own free will about themselves and they think it's a little weird to be that close to someone, they don't really know that well, and that it does start to feel obsessive, they start to back away because they they want to.
2: Experts cite a wide range of reasons why some of us may be prone to such one-sided, even obsessive, relationships. Here's Dr. Alexandra Katahakis, Clinical Director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles our mind
5: is formed in relation to other human beings. You know, if somebody dies and they do an autopsy, they can find a brain, but you can't find the mind. I mean, it just doesn't, exist as a structure, it's really in relation to others. So other people make us feel, some people make us feel good about ourselves, some people make us feel out of our mind, some people bring out the worst in us, and so it's a social organ, the brain, and everything is focused back in on um, the person's lived experience.
2: Our lived experience obviously begins when we're infants. How we bond, or attach then, can significantly influence our emotional development as well as the overall health of our relationships. Remember, Will and Abby's mutual love didn't survive for many reasons. They each brought their own attachment issues to the relationship, seemingly ripped from a Psychology 101 textbook.
0: She dumped me right before the holidays. You know, who does that? I mean, my parents were asking me what our plans were. I had had nothing to tell them.
1: I'm not going to apologize for ending it when I did. Do I feel bad that I hurt him? Yes, but... He sent screenshots of conversations with his mom about me. He was trying to guilt me, just like his mom does to him.
0: My mom can be super judgmental, and Abby was like the first girl that she ever just liked and totally signed off on.
1: I'm like, grow up, Will. I'm not your mother, and it's not my fault she was never around when you were a kid. The holidays are hard for me, too. He knows how close I was to my dad. I still miss him every day.
0: On the anniversary of her dad's death, I reposted a bunch of pictures of us together so that she'd get the notifications. I guess, even though it was one-sided, I kind of felt like we were still somehow communicating.
1: We were done. Over. I was really freaked out when he posted stuff about my father on Facebook. After seeing this side of him, how could I ever consider getting back together?
0: I heard she went ballistic after I posted, but I think she misunderstood. And then, more good news, I got fired. kind of thought it would give me a little more time to concentrate on trying to win back Abby, but it honestly made things worse.
2: More time on his hands is not what Will needed. He needed help. Why is he making these decisions that seem so destructive? Here's Dr. Katahakis to explain how, generally speaking, obsessive love develops.
5: These attachment styles get set up um, in infancy, they don't just get up by a single incident. When we think of childhood trauma, we think of that which we remember. So, if you have a mother who's profoundly depressed um, or anxious, or has, you know, some mild psychosis or personality disorder, all of which create regulatory problems in her system, she cannot regulate that infant. And in not being able to regulate the infant appropriately. Um, that infant's the structures and functions of that infant's brain and nervous system are not going to set up optimally the way the organism is meant to work. If there was arguing, alcoholism, domestic violence, um, and then a parent leaves, whether it's mother or father. That is going to impact that child most likely in very serious ways, and. Pia Melody, who sort of wrote the book on love addiction, maintains that when we are abandoned um, by a parent, we become love addicted to that gender, and when we are overly enmeshed with a parent, we become love avoidant with that gender. So if a female is abandoned by her father emotionally or physically in childhood, she's probably going to be love addicted to men, assuming she's heterosexual. And so she's going to start to fall on that continuum of obsession and pathological attachment um, that looks like what we call love addiction in contemporary terms.
2: The death of Abby's father had a profound effect on her and the type of men she's been drawn to as an adult. The loss of a parent, a child, any loved one is a traumatic life event. It's natural for the grieving to want to fill that void. The director and Oscar-winning screenwriter Neil Jordan often explores unlikely and inappropriate relationships in his films, as he does in his latest, Greta. But he also takes us into the mind of a mother whose obsession with motherhood becomes not just unnatural, but pathological.
5: I can't imagine anything more terrifying than a mother, you know, than a demented mother trying to demand affection from a random person that they happen to befriend on the street. And the way, the way I built her up uh, in the script was inspired by European fairy tales, you know, grim fairy tales, you know, uh, Hansel and Gretel, where the two kids wander in the forest, they get lost in the forest and they, you know, they they kind of find a house with this little old lady who turns out to just wanted to be fattened, fattened them up so she can eat them. I don't know why. Probably something to do with loneliness, you know, and our need for company and all of the impossible ideals of romantic love and fulfillment that the media and fiction and storytelling give us, you know, really.
2: Timing is everything, or so the annoying cliche goes, but it is true, especially when it comes to love, all kinds of love, even the obsessive kind. When you're anxious, bored, insecure, or unhappy with your partner or your career, you're more apt to look for an escape. And you're more open to obsessive fantasies about another person. Couple that with some baggage you've got from childhood, and you could very well find yourself in Chris's shoes. He's a stressed-out married dad who became fixated on a mom he met in his child's playgroup.
6: From what I understand, what the problem is is, you know, you you basically have as some kind of emotional need some kind of uh, emotional fulfillment that is missing in your life during early childhood development that you kind of seek in your adult life so for me i was raised by my grandmother and my mom worked uh, as a waitress most of her life so i didn't get much opportunities to spend with my mom and my like, i started to seek the approval of you know female teachers not necessarily be a teacher's pet because that wasn't cool but just seeking approval of women. Um, my personal life was just strained, you know? Um, suddenly you're, you're no longer uh, the most important person to your wife, you know? So I think that's a common theme. I mean, what made mine uncommon is having opposite work schedules with my, with my wife. So I think I basically kind of bottomed out, you know? And then all of a sudden, here's this pretty girl who's, you know, like almost the spitting image of my wife. She was occupying 95% of my time thinking about her. Where am I going to see her? Where am I going to see her car? Am I going to run into her at the store? I was kind of going nuts to the point where I was just, I need to just get this all out. Finally, I just called my wife up. She's at work. And I FaceTime her because we're a FaceTiming type couple. And I just lay it out there. And I tell her, you know, I can't stop thinking about this other person and nothing's ever happened. I don't even think that she feels that way about me, but I know how I feel and I just, I need to like let you know and I need to basically eliminate or stop contacting this person. I literally started shaking. I felt cold. I like, my knees were like buckling. Um, I don't know if it was just simply nerves or like getting a quote unquote dopamine hit, just talking about the person. And so, like, what I realize is that's something that I've had my entire life.
2: Middle age can be a pretty vulnerable time for many people, just like Chris. Why? Well, people get bored, or they've never gotten what they wanted, and they're losing time and opportunity. To help us understand, here's more from Dr. Katahakis.
5: So one of the earmarks is that very early on, they turned to fantasy, whether it was uh, playing Barbies all the time, and the Barbie was the primary family, or if it's, um, you know, turning to comic books, or online gaming, or just being in fantasy, you know, classically that someday my prince or princess will come, somebody's going to come rescue me. And that fantasy is really a neural pathway in the brain that starts to get honed over time because it's being used as an escape. So the organism can only take so much stress uh, before it can't handle anymore. And so you get this flattening or deadness internally. And the way people function is that they adapt. So they live in fantasy about, you know, who's going to love them or who would want them because they never had a parent that came for them. Teen
2: angst, on the other hand, fueled Penelope's obsession with Mr. Tinkle.
3: I I just really, I really did want to make Contact, But I didn't know how. I, I mean, I, had no, I didn't date in high school. I didn't have boyfriends. But I started to project what I wanted in a romantic partner onto him. Because he, he was, in a lot of ways, a very blank slate. And he could, have, he could be whatever I needed him to be. And so he kind of started to become that in my mind. It sort of gave me hope that there was someone out there who would understand me or who would be a good fit for me. I think in the back of my mind, I knew that I was romanticizing him and turning him into a fantasy, but he he was my own creation in a lot of ways. And he almost was becoming my, my boyfriend in my, my head, where I was masturbating to him every night.
2: This sort of feels like the plot of an 80s teen movie, for better or for worse. And like those films, it does have a sweet ending. A few years later, while Penelope was in college, she got an unexpected message from Mr. Tinkle, who'd heard some stuff
3: that piqued his interest. April 3rd, 2008. So this was probably two years after I had graduated from high school. But out of the blue, one day I get a Facebook message from him. And he said, So I know we don't really know each other, but I heard a pretty interesting story about you earlier today. I decided it was worth following up on. And I responded, "Ha ha! Oh, you don't even know. I don't even know where to begin."
4: When I looked her up on Facebook, I recognized her, um, but I would not say that I was very aware of who she was. I, I don't remember noticing that a pair of boxes was missing. It's like you know, pretty. I, I don't. I don't think I ever noticed or thought anything of it. I think the the biggest time that I think I like really noticed anything like out of the ordinary that i was like that's weird how did that happen was um my older brother was like in bands all through like high school and early college had a wikipedia page and at the bottom it was like he also has a younger brother he's really cute and i don't remember the specific detail but it was like a compliment i remember my whole family being like how did that get there like what is that and wondering if a friend had done it as a joke and like asking my friends but no one sort of spoke up for it.
2: Penelope confessed her high school obsession for Mr. Tinkle, every last detail. He was more flattered than weirded out. He has rarely talked about the Tinkle file, but reflecting back on this time of his life, he does wish it had a different outcome while they were in school together.
4: It's like I always had a hard time like telling the story. Like, yeah, it was like this girl, she kind of had a crush on me, or she was like maybe obsessed with me. Like, it feels like such a weird thing to say. Like, it sounds like you're like bragging or something. Like, but it's like a true story. so I never really know like how to talk about it. But, but it also doesn't seem like it was like mean spirited, like they were doing, like that they were having fun at my expense. As a freshman in high school, if she had just talked to me um, and maybe I would have been like shy or freaked out and nothing would have came of it. But I, I guess I just felt like that would have been another way it could have gone and that something good could have could have come out of it that way.
2: So the innocent schoolyard stalker Penelope didn't have any lasting damage on Mr. Tinkle. Neither was left hopeless or tortured. But the same cannot be said for Abby or Will. Next time on Obsession.
0: Yeah, I was always on the lookout for Abby. I mean, I was always looking for her, you know? Sometimes I'd think, I'd see someone that looked like her, and it just, I don't know, it felt like a sign, like I had to do something.
1: I kept looking over my shoulder... Or I'd see something that made me think, did he put that there? Then I got really scared around Valentine's Day. If you or
2: someone you know is struggling like Will, there's help. You can get information on mental health treatment services in your area by going to samhsa.gov or calling 1-800-662-HELP to speak to someone. Free, confidential, 24-7, 365 days a year. You're not alone. This podcast was created on behalf of Focus Features by LA Times Studios and does not reflect the views of the Los Angeles Times, nor does it involve the editorial or reporting staffs of the Los Angeles Times.